What I'm going to do is pipe the audio from my screen reader uh, into the call. And so you'll basically be able to hear what I'm hearing. And then I'm going to have it read for a little bit. Let's just give it a whirl. Let's let's have it read like the first paragraph or two This is Taking Flight, a show about people redefining disability by challenging the world we live in. I'm Perry LaRock, and on today's episode, we are going to talk about what you see, not how you see it, with Sina Baram. Sina lost the majority of his sight and became legally blind during his childhood. An obvious genius, he gravitated towards subjects like astrophysics, quantum mechanics, and computer sciences to realize that the only thing getting in his way was the inaccessibility of the material, and not because he couldn't understand it. In a somewhat begrudging career diversion, he decided to dedicate his career to making sure that regardless of how one sees, we can all experience the world together. Here's Sina. My family is from Iran, so my brother and sister, who are older than me, they were born there. My mom and dad were also born in Iran. And then they moved over to the United States, and during that trip is when I was born. So I was born in Turkey on the way over to the United States uh, in Ankara. But, you know, I speak Farsi, they speak Farsi at home, all of all of that good stuff. But I grew up in the United States in South Carolina until... Uh, the end of middle school, and then high school and college and graduate school was in North Carolina. So when I was born, I definitely had some level of difficulty with vision. And, and you can tell this from, you know, rapid eye movement, uh, lateral movement. Now, they suspected some retinal issues, but, you know, didn't really know. But then when I was six or seven years old, let's go with, let's go with seven. I was uh, playing tennis against the backboard. So just like, you know, serving the ball against the backboard, having it bounce back, hitting it again. And I had enough usable vision to kind of do that, right? So I had, I, I, I didn't have great vision as a kid, but enough usable vision to kind of do that. And then I missed one of the shots, uh, but my face didn't. And so as a result, I lost all of the vision in my right eye. So no usable vision in my right eye, right? So totally blind in that eye. And then in my left eye, you can, you, you know, some light perception, some shape stuff. I had a little bit better vision as a kid. But these days, you know, I use it when it is helpful, but I don't rely on it. So as a consequence, I read Braille, I travel with a cane, and my computer has, and, and my phone and, you know, all the tech that I use has something called a screen reader on it, which is an application that reads me those screens and lets me interact with them. Right. I have a good friend of mine who is blind and she was born and her condition hasn't changed from the time she was born till now. And so one of the interesting conversations I have had with her a couple different times was, what do you see right now? And at some point it got to this conversation about, I don't know how to compare it to what you see. And I was like, oh yeah, I didn't, I didn't really think about that. Right. It's, it's not, she didn't have any comparison to what I can see. And so it was really hard for her to explain uh, in context of what she can see. And so it seems like you have some comparison prior to being blind fully to know what you're not seeing now. Sort of, but there's a little bit of a catch there, which makes this conversation even more difficult. So the lack of a comparison point is one thing for, let's say, somebody who hasn't had enough usable vision. But the other thing is that your brain is really, really good at building models. And that's what we do. We have a model of our bedroom in our head, you know, whether we can see or not, right? We have a model of like where something roughly is when you reach your hand out, even though you're not looking for it and you grab a coffee cup or something along these lines, right? And so for me especially, and I think that this is true for, for many folks, especially if you've seen before, you know, my brain might use that visual language, to build that model. So for example, I'm talking to you right now. I've got a desk in front of me. My laptop's in front of me. There's a mixer to my left. There's a microphone to my right. If you were to ask me what I would um, think about like the scene that's in front of me, I would tell you like, I, I visually can see a microphone to my right. Now, I assure you that I absolutely cannot visually see the microphone to my right, but my brain's penciling that in. 
you know, and, and, uh, even when I had a little bit of better vision, but I didn't have binocular vision. I didn't have, you know, both eyes working. There really should be no reason for me to have depth perception, but I did, right? Fr from the perspective of it may not have been real, but it was a working model that was sufficient to then get me kind of to, to model the world for myself, visually speaking, because that was still a primary, you know, a primary sense for me when I was younger. And correct me if I'm wrong, because you probably know people's misperceptions better than I do, <laughs> is that it's to be blind, it's all or nothing, right? So uh, you yeah. see dark or you see everything. That's clearly, there's a huge continuum in between the two of them. Huge, huge. In fact, most people are low vision. They're not blind. Just like how most people are not fully deaf. They may be partially deaf or hard of hearing or, you know, however they want to identify, but it, it's not an all or nothing. It really is a spectrum there, right? One of the things that comes up a lot, you know, in our work, and I'm sure we'll get to this later, is like assuming a certain static thing about people is oftentimes how we accidentally create exclusionary situations because we assume, oh, okay, that person uses a wheelchair. Now I know, you know, what box to put them in. Well, not, no, they're using a wheelchair right now. That That's all you know. You don't know how that's going to affect or manifest four hours from now or yesterday. How, how do you, how do you dream? Yeah, it's an interesting one. So remember the thing I said about models, about like your brain modeling things. I, I think that's a lot of it. So like, for example, in my dreams, I would claim that I do have visual language in them, if that makes sense. So, you know, if my dream involves a house, I see the house, right? Now, we can have an entire philosophical conversation about what it means to see and, and, you know, whether that is like optical or, or, or what have you. But, but really it's, it's interesting because it is visual language, you know, uh, depending on, I mean, depending on how surreal the dream is, of course, but, but, you know, assuming just normal circumstances, it is visual, right? Like you see people, you see, or I should, I, I see people, I see, you know, objects and, uh, daytime and nighttime and things of that nature. Do you enter a different world or is it a pretty similar world? In terms of like entering a different world? Yeah. Like it's, it's weird. I would say more clarity, which is odd because I would, I would posit that most people, when they speak of dreams, actually attribute a fuzziness or a certain lack of clarity, you know, to them. But visually speaking, definitely more clarity. Or you know what I should say? I should say more certainty. Whether or not it's clear is, is honestly beside the point. I'm rather certain about what I think it is that I'm seeing. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So then when you had that injury then, mm -hmm. and your your vision drastically changed. I mean, what was that experience like being a young kid? Disability, I, I feel, uh, definitely incurs a pretty fast rate of uh, growth, you know, it really makes you mature quicker, because certain things are happening, whether it is, you know, hospital visits, or you observe the reactions of your parents to the situation, you know, whatever it is, there's all these factors that just personally speaking, and I've, I've, I've thought a lot about this while interacting with so many persons with disabilities, I, I feel like it really brings a certain level of early maturity to children. But, you know, that's just that's just a personal theory. I don't have any evidence for it. Uh, learning was definitely affected, right? So imagine learning to read, but you are also learning Braille at the same time. And if you could see before, the tendency is that you want to use your vision. It doesn't matter how bad it is. Like, it does not matter how bad it is. Your Braille could be 10 times faster than you reading visually, but you're going to, you know, I'm, I'm telling you right now, 999 times out of 1,000, the kid's going to go for the visual stimulus, right? Another thing I think is interesting, I was watching uh, one of your things on YouTube, and mm -hmm. you were talking about how on Helen Keller's statue tribute, mm -hmm. that there's a misspelling in Braille. Yeah, there's a Braille, there's a Braille typo there. Yeah, which I which I think is interesting. And it made me think about the fact that, you know, I think that people have a general idea of sign language, right? We have some idea of what someone is doing when they're signing. I think most of us get on an elevator and look at a Braille and we have absolutely no idea what to do. And so as a little kid, you know, how hard is it to learn Braille? I think little kids can do anything. First of all, I, I, I long for the, uh, uh, ability to like 
you know, roll down a hill and skin like 18 different parts of your body and be fine like five minutes later and you know, all of all of that. So that's number one. Uh, that flexibility definitely exists mentally, in my opinion, as well. I, I fundamentally believe you can teach kids anything. It's just an incredible time of neuroplasticity. And so you you really can just absorb knowledge really quickly. And Braille is one of those things. You know, uh, Braille is a system is very simple, right? There's there's six dots in the cell. So there's only 64 possibilities of possible Braille cells. That's it, two to the six. That's, that's all you got. And so within those 64 symbols, you have to do a good job encoding everything. And that's, that's what Louis Braille did, basically, is he came up with a very simplistic system that's incredibly powerful. And so once you learn the basics, you learn how much of it builds on each other. So for example, in Braille, A through J are unique symbols. They always use the top four dots of the cell. And then if you know A through J, you can know the rest of the letters of the alphabet. Because the next 10 characters in Braille are simply A through J, but with a dot three uh, uh, added in. So it's composite. It builds on itself. So it's easy to, once you get the basics down, you can start learning it, right? And, and you can start building on top of it. Is the fluency rate higher in Braille or is it about the same as like a normal uh, reading of some print with your eyes? Oh, gosh, uh, not even remotely close. Universes apart. The literacy rates in Braille is deplorable. And, and the reason is because like, why would you read Braille at a certain rate? And I'll talk about reading speeds in a second. When you can listen to your phone do that 10 times faster, 20 times faster in some cases, right? Or your computer. So a lot of a lot of kids don't learn it or don't have the draw, you know, don't have the the external pressure to learn it from teachers and parents and such. And, you know, you get by, right? You you don't really need it until you get to high school and you start doing math and you start doing science and you start doing these things, uh, you know, music and other things where Braille really comes in handy. And then what do we see? Well, unsurprisingly, we see a huge gap. Now, it's for other reasons as well in the participation of blind students in STEM, in science, technology, engineering, and math. So do you feel like that as screen readers have become faster and more universal that some of these some of this technology is taking over the need for braille? It, I don't know that it is taking over the need for braille, but I would say that it is perceived to be taking over the need for braille. I, I, I distinguish between those two things, right? And so from people's perspective, you don't need braille to read an email when your computer will just read it to you. Now that's fine, but you may need it to read that physics equation. Braille is a, a system of reading and writing that doesn't rely on technology in certain ways. It's really important to keep in mind, Braille is not a language. So sign language is a language, and there are many sign languages. There's LSQ, you know, up in Canada. There's BSL for British, ASL, American Sign Language. There's all of these different sign languages, right? And they are languages. They are legitimate, full-born languages. Braille is not a language. Braille is a script. Because Braille represents whatever language underneath it is being spoken or, or being right. written. You started to learn Braille, and then this was elementary school. What were your early ambitions? I mean, what, what were you hoping to do? Astrophysics, computer science, you know, quantum mechanics, that kind of stuff. You know, as I grew older, I gravitated towards computation and computer science and, and all of those things. But my, my, my love for, for space and just even just physics in general, it's, it, it, it's important to understand how the world works, I feel. So, so what'd you, where'd you go to college? What'd you end up studying? Uh, NC State, North Carolina State University, and I studied computer science uh, for undergraduate and graduate, um, ABD, all but dissertation in a PhD in computer science in something called human-computer interaction. So that, pretty much like it sounds, it looks at ways that humans and computers interact with one another. How can we use computing and computer science principles not only to make the digital world better, but also to make the physical world better and vice versa. How can you use like physical objects to do computation, you know, with like tangible user interfaces and fiducials and things like that? At least 13 years since you graduated undergrad, I'm assuming the technological advances on accessibility for computers has changed drastically. It has. It has. We've been fortunate enough to help invent some of them. And so that's been a really wonderful adventure. You know, when I was in school, I couldn't read math on the web. Like that was not a thing. 
And now, because of the amazing work that Neil Soifer especially did on something called Math Player, it's a system whereby if you're a screen reader user, you can read the MathML that's on Wikipedia, right? You can, you can, I, I, I was able to use a system that I helped invent to go to, you know, the web and read Einstein's equations by myself and have them sound correct and have them feel correct on a Braille display, on an, on an electronic Braille display. So I'm curious about when, you know, you're, you're in computer sci and then you see this opportunity. When did that happen? And then tell us how it, it got you where you are today. I spent a lot of time in grad school doing absolutely everything you can possibly imagine other than accessibility work. So data visualization, like the most visual thing I could get my hands on, right? I did that. Uh, security. I did that. Like thought about picking up a law degree, like you protein folding stuff, like anything that was not accessibility. That is what I was doing, right? Because it was, because it felt cliche, like the blind guy doing accessibility. Like it's like, all right. Yeah. I get it. Right. Like it's, it's really, really a little bit on the nose. Right. But then what was happening was all the stuff I wanted to do and all the stuff I was being asked to do, et cetera. It, 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 it depended on using these various tools and these various systems and reading these various papers and all of this stuff. Right. And, Basically, none of that stuff was accessible. And that's just the, that's just the truth. And so then I was in this situation where I'm like, look, I am a computer scientist. I know how to have built that system such that it would have been usable by a bunch of other people. And it really takes some consideration and some knowledge about fundamentals up front and some inclusive design thinking. And this was very, you know, apparent to me. I mean, even at a younger, very young age, but especially after formal computer science training, because then I literally knew exactly what it would have taken to make something accessible. And, and that I think was honestly the impetus that pushed me into accessibility and, and formally into human computer interaction, because I was just so disappointed, to be honest with you, with the state of the field. It was atrocious. If you are blind, let's just use that population for now and wanting to go into technology, it's easier now than it was 10 years ago in some ways, but there's a lot, there's a lot of obstacles to overcome. We were chatting before and I, I said, you know, there's just so many questions. And, and the first one just popped up when I learned about what you do. And that is to make websites more accessible to people who are blind. And I, I had this sort of embarrassing like aha moment, like, oh, yeah, I guess that people who are blind would like to also be on the Internet. And I, I just realized how little I actually know about that and what that process looks like and how that web browsing experience is different. Yeah, I mean, so essentially, whether you're doing this on your iPhone or whether you're doing it on your laptop, for example, if you are if you are blind or sufficiently low vision that you're not enlarging the screen, because that's a different type of uh, assistive technology. But if you're relying on speech, then you're using something called a screen reader. It's just a program that runs on your computer. Sometimes it comes with the operating system like it does on Apple products. And it reads to you what is happening on the screen. But it isn't just like read the whole screen. That would be super annoying, right? You need to know where you are. Are you in the to field of the email or the CC field of the email, right? Are you on the yes, I would like to save button or the no, discard my changes button, right? And so it reads your focus, or sometimes this is referred to as your point of regard, right? Where are you in the user interface? If you've ever tabbed around a user interface just with the tab key on your keyboard, and you see that box come around those UI elements, or you see the color change, that's so that somebody who can see and needs to use the keyboard, right, is able to know where they are, where that, that same exact concept is important for people who can't see the screen. They need to know where they are. And then once you know where you are, you need to know what you're on. Are you on a button? Are you on an edit field? Are you on a menu? Are you in a paragraph? Uh, are you in a drop-down list? What, what, are, what are you on? And then you need to know what's what what the state of that thing is. Is it expanded? Is it collapsed? Is it highlighted? Is it selected? There's all these concepts. And so this is kind of what makes it hard if you think about it, because as a sighted individual, you don't have to know any of this stuff to use a user interface. I can put a user interface in front of you. And depending on your level of technological familiarity or just age, you're going to be up and running. In, in some short amount of time, you're going to figure it out. You're going to intuit. You're going to click around. You're going to do some stuff and you're going to, you're going to just be, be okay. Right. Because we design for 
our fellow humans who have nominal vision and nominal hearing and all these things. The second you start thinking about how somebody who can't see uses interfaces, it makes you start thinking about what's the difference between a button and a link? And yes, that really matters because it matters how that individual then proceeds to interact with those elements, right? So semantics, all of a sudden, the meaning of user interface elements, they start becoming important. Does the visual interface, does it not only look appropriate and convey the design intent you're going for, but is it encoded in such a way that it means what you're trying to have it mean? And that's where we get disconnects in accessibility. People get the first part right and they make it look okay, but they don't get the second part right because they're not doing things semantically. Right. Yeah. I mean, I kind of think about a web page, like your average web page. And I feel like if it was all talking, it would be screaming just because (laughs) there's so much going on at one point. How, How efficient is it? Well, it depends on how accessible it is. How efficient is it? It might not be coded semantically. So then what happens is you'll be on a news website. Let's say there's 20, 30, 40 headlines. You want to just quickly browse through the headlines, right? We all do this, right? Do, 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 just reading the news. I mean, in 2020, it's pretty depressing, but you know, still do it, right? And uh, the thing is, you can't do that if those aren't headings. You have to then read all the junk in the middle and jump over this next paragraph. And maybe there's an ad in the way. And maybe there's like a subscribe button. And then you go to the next thing and the next thing. And and it's like really irritating. But if they were all encoded correctly as headings, like we talked about, I, I have a single keystroke to jump between them. In fact, I might be able to read it faster than you. Because when I'm listening to my screen reader, I listen to it at a pretty fast, you know, speed. Yeah, this is this is you know this is our opportunity now because I thought what was one of the most fascinating things from our last call was the pace at which you can read a screen reader. What I'm going to do is pipe the audio from my screen reader uh, into the call, and so you'll basically be able to hear what I'm hearing, and then I'm going to have it read for a little bit. Let's just give it a whirl. Let's let's have it read like the first paragraph or two or whatever. <laughs> Okay, that's that's good enough. That was the first paragraph or two. Yeah, that was um. Here, why don't we hear that? We'll hear that. Is that good for you? Slower. Yeah, that's good. Cool. Drifting through interstellar space, three light years out from the star 31 Aquilae, the Niana Abode cluster picked up a series of short, faint electromagnetic pulses that lasted intermittently for 18. That's what you were listening to was probably. Oh, I don't know, 180, 200 words a minute. I, I haven't measured it. Uh, what you were hearing before when, um, when I had it going, you know, pretty, pretty fast at like kind of my normal reading speed, uh, that was closer to 900, 950, uh, words per minute or so. And so in some ways too, this is where you just look at, you know, some things that I think that when we look as less than in the word of Temple Grand and less than rather than different to, mm-hmm. You forget about the fact that here you are able to read, even though that you're blind, about five times faster at the average rate than mm-hmm. what anybody else could read. So it's almost, in some ways, there's it, it's almost better. Uh, it can be, but here's the problem. It doesn't matter how fast I can read if your website makes me navigate through a hundred useless links before I can get to the main article. The technology portion for the assistive technology pieces, whether it's a Braille display, whether it's making the text larger on the screen, whether it's inverting colors, whether it's screen reading, all of these things. There's so many. I listed like 10% of what's out there, okay? All of those have been somewhat solved to varying degrees of success. There's always room for improvement, but they've been somewhat solved. What we don't have is a plethora of accessible coding and content such that that can be you know, used in this advantageous way. So I might be able to read an email four times, five times faster than you can, but you can do a couple of things that are rather difficult, like browse through the 40 emails in your inbox, quickly having a name jump out at you. The speed doesn't make up for all of the wasted time on navigation and on the like little gotchas that come up because of the lack of accessibility in these interfaces. Yeah, how do emojis come out? 
Proper emojis actually do read, right? So, uh, uh, those are, those are pretty good. Um, you know, Apple has visual descriptions that they surface on iOS for all of the emoji, right? So it will not only say like raised fist, but it will say like raised fist with medium dark skin tone, right? Because we want to be inclusive, not just from an accessibility perspective, but from other aspects and other vectors of human difference as well. But you get to hear about the winky guy at the end of the sarcastic comments. <laughs> that, that's right. Yeah, that's okay, right. Good because sometimes you know if you miss that context, you're in trouble. It's a lot of it's a lot of nuance. As being the disabling condition, it sounds like the majority of time your disabling condition has nothing to do with your eyes. It has to do with the environment which you're operating in. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, if you if you look at like definitional terms, like when I when I talk about accessibility, I talk about it as the the things we do specific to enable persons with disabilities or those who use assistive technologies to be able to use something. So accessibility is very much linked to disability, right? But then we have to ask a question: What is disability? Right? Disability is just a consequence of an impairment. It doesn't matter what it is. How does society deal with that? How do, how do we interact with individuals that have disabilities is an interesting lens that, that, that occurs. So like the old model, the medical model is like, oh, well, the person's disabled. Like you can't walk. It is your fault, right? Like that is end of discussion, right? Something is broken with you. Whereas the environmental or social model of disability, and there's plenty of others, there's entire dissertations written on this subject. But if you just look at in broad strokes, the environmental or social model of disability, it looks at the environment as being disabling. It's not you that's disabled. It is the building being disabling for not having a door opening button so that somebody can enter it if they're using crutches to move around. That inclusive design actually yields this incredible net positive effect. If you were to go off and create your very own Sim City, right, that was made for all the accommodations and all the different technologies that you're talking about, specifically for people who are blind, there really would be no disability in that world. But if I show up, I'd be probably totally lost. Which is which is equally bad. Like I'm not a fan of those, right? I'm not. There's there's appropriate times. Don't get me wrong. So I want to be very clear. There are specialized interfaces that are incredibly helpful. I use one. It's called a screen reader. I don't recommend that you use a screen reader. It wouldn't be efficient for you to use a screen reader, right? However, you might get some you know assistance out of, for example, having a long medium post that you have to read and turning on the speech just for that piece. That might be augmentative to you, but that that's a specialized interface. So I don't, you know, think that just because it's great for blind people, it's great for everybody. What's important is to differentiate between accessibility and inclusion there. So inclusion to me is making sure that nobody feels othered, not just myself. When we're working with organizations, I don't just concentrate on the blind stuff and the low vision stuff. It has to work for everybody. But the real magic comes from when the environment can be adaptive in such a way that does not diminish other people's user experience or other people's just physical experience at the expense of someone else. Give me an example of an inclusive design, you know, of a project that you've worked on where you felt like it really met those inclusive standards. Well, like the, the work of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, for example, is a, is a pretty good example of that. This is something that Corey Timpson, one of like good, good friend of mine, business partner of mine, and a lot of this work, and just an incredible, incredible leader in terms of inclusion, period, and inclusive design specifically. We developed a photography exhibition. Well, the exhibition already existed. We loaned it for the Human Rights Museum. Um, and it was called Sight Unseen, and it's a photography exhibition where all of the photographers who contributed work to this exhibition are blind. Typically, what you have in this exhibition as it's toured around is, uh, you know, some great description. But what we did then was take um, some of the photos and translate those into a tactile relief that had hotspots embedded in the relief and the image mapped across the relief. So we took a visual medium and made it multimodal, multi-sensory, because now it was visual, tactile, and audio. And so as you're you're exploring the image tactilely, you're hitting the hotspots and it's describing what you're you're feeling. So we we like now, Cena and I, for example, can experience these photos together at the same time in multiple modalities, because it's not just a visual description of the image. It's, ta it's the tactile modality is exploring it. And so for anybody who comes in 
you know, I come in and I'm now experiencing a visual tactile audio, you know, experience versus just a visual experience and seen as experiencing multiple modalities as well. One of the later exhibitions that we produced where we, a photography exhibition where we did this, it was a crowdsourced exhibition and uh, it was celebrating sort of different social movements. And one of them was inclusion and diversity really around ethnic and racial inclusion and diversity topics. But the winning photo was a a woman with a black dress on and a white hijab against a black background and her head and her hands out in prayer stand out against the background that's that's all black. So when we, you know, went through translating that into a tactile relief, audio described, etc., we ended up with this result that is like a life-size scale. So we contacted the subject of the photo first to make sure she would be okay with us translating her likeness into a tactile relief piece. People would be putting their hands on her and she was cool with it. And what happens is you end up holding hands with her, like as you're exploring the photo. And, you know, this is the inclusion and diversity category. It's a very intimate gesture to hold hands with somebody. You know, like this was like, you know, goosebumps. It was just a great experience. And, you know, that wouldn't have been possible had we not been thinking through these things and trying to develop more inclusive and multimodal and multisensory experiences. Should it be mandated? Should we be seeking policy to say this is just how the world should operate or should it be voluntary? I mean, what, what's your stand on that? I mean, I'm sure you run into a lot of things where you say, God, it just would just, they would have just done it this way. I, I could enjoy this or I could watch this or I could benefit from it. But it, it always seems like there's a price tag associated, right? Well, because people do it wrong is where those price tags get get inflated. That's that's number one from an engineering, a design perspective, a budgeting perspective and all sorts of other things. Right. They also spend a lot of time fighting it. Right. Should it be mandated? Well, I mean, you know, I, I think yes, because I think equity matters. It's, it's 2020. Right. If you're not OK with saying no black people in this building, why are you OK with saying, you know, nobody who uses a wheelchair or nobody who is blind or has a hearing impairment? That makes no sense to me. Right. People are people. But also, it's the smart financial decision. There's, I think the last study I was reading was 500 billion in discretionary income alone in just America amongst persons with disabilities and their families, right? Like that's just America, right? It's, it's in the trillions worldwide, right? And so it's not just even a, hey, you should do this because it's the right thing to do. You, you should, but also, it's not only the right thing to do, it's business-wise the smart thing to do. Where people make it expensive is when they spend all of their time yelling and screaming about it and fighting it. And so then they end up paying attorneys instead of designers and engineers. And it's really, truly that simple. Yeah. I mean, we've always said that disability is sort of the last field of diversity that people oftentimes overlook, right? Absolutely. And I always feel like some, in some ways, disability is left off. It is. I mean, not not in some ways. It just, it is. It seems like for companies who are trying to, you know, virtual signal in so many different ways, yeah. it seems like this is an area where they could not only virtual signal, but they could make a really big change. They could make a really big change. And it also affects the people who work at those companies. For the most part, when we work with these folks, nobody goes like, why should I do that? Or I really don't feel like doing that or anything along these lines. They always are interested in how to make their products more usable to more people because A, there's a financial incentive there, but B, from an engineering perspective, not from a business perspective, they just want more people to enjoy their stuff. They care about what they're building. The issue is that sometimes it's not even a matter of like mandating it or anything along those lines. It's a, it's a, it's a issue of prioritization and sequencing when it comes to the boring stuff, the project management, the logistics, the operational side, the design phase, you know, the stuff most consumers don't think about, right? But in those phases, if you include inclusion and accessibility and usability analysis and things of this nature, oh, it pays dividends down the road. But just in terms of the voice, I mean, you have companies who make decisions based off of numbers, right? And so how do you how do you create change like that without having huge voice? Yeah, I mean, the smart ones do, right? The, the smart ones are seeing the numbers and they are investing in this in this field to some extent. So it needs to be a multi-pronged approach because if you just concentrate on, you know, persons with disabilities doing the work, that's 
that's something that's already been done for for many many years companies need to have economic advantages you know advantages for doing it there needs to be legislation to support it there needs to be a public mandate like you said that people are active about it much like for example what we saw with black lives matter in 2020 right it's not like black lives matter was new right that wasn't that wasn't just invented in 2020 right however it took on a certain level of public growth and adoption because of some incredibly unfortunate events that happened right well this level of just wide adoption of inclusivity matters and that persons with disabilities are people too, et cetera, that needs to occur, right? That needs to happen because otherwise we are going to be making and building a world that is increasingly inaccessible. Technology is advancing exponentially and accessibility as, as good as it's going, is basically advancing linearly. And those graphs are going to start growing apart from one another really, really, really fast pretty soon. As you start getting more and more automatic generation of user interfaces, and as you start taking humans out of the loop in some of these different processes, we've got a unique opportunity to build accessibility into those building blocks. So there's an opportunity to really advance accessibility and inclusion. If our thought process around these inventors was, what's a way to do this that's faster, that is also accessible, mm -hmm. that they could solve two problems at the same time? That's right. That's right. I mean, think of learning keyboard shortcuts. A lot of people, after they talk with us, you know, they're not they're not blind or screen reader users or anything like that, you know. But they learn about some keyboard shortcuts, and they're like, "Why would I? Why would I move my hand over there to the mouse when I could have just done this?" Like that. That's so helpful. And it's little things like that where, again, go back to the earlier thing we were talking about. You may not rely on it. You may not need it, but it's still helpful to you. And someone else does need it. So why not put it in, right? You know, it's interesting. I, one of my, I saw I was a teacher and I'll, I'll tell you one of the least favorite arguments that I would hear made primarily by, you know, administrators who had to worry about budget, right? Mm -hmm was they would always use this like slippery slope fallacy that, well, if I, if we have a, you know, sign language interpreter come to this meeting, then we're going to have to have them come to all meetings. And pretty soon we're going to have to start doing everything for everybody. Do you run into that? I mean, do you run into people who start to say, well, you know, if I do this, then I'll have to do it for everybody. And we just don't have the money to do that. We run into it, but after talking with us for a few minutes, they feel kind of foolish. They don't usually continue the conversation. It doesn't make sense, right? Like it's, it's not only a slippery slope argument. It's like, do you bother conducting your meeting in English or are, are you also concerned that, uh, you know, uh, this one time you had subtitles for French that meant that now you have to be speaking French every, I mean, like it's just, there, there's, there's the concern there. I don't really think stems from an honest budgetary consideration. I think the concern there stems from, first of all, change is hard, change is new, change is scary. In some ways, I think that there's always this us first them kind of mentality, right. right? The classic case of general education teachers referring to special education students as your students versus my students, right? Yes. And whether or not we want to look at this as a whole community and, and do we really want to work to make sure that everybody's included within it. So how do we not do things differently, but how do we do it one time for everybody? A lot of what you're talking about is square within that philosophy. Absolutely. Like when you're writing the calculus equation on the board, right? Say it out loud. This is not rocket science. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, it's just yeah. not rocket right. science, right? Say it out loud. Who does that help? Well, let's, let's see here. It helps the person who can't see. Okay. So you take care of your blind students. It helps the person looking down and taking notes. So the incidentally blind students, hopefully that's a majority of your class if you believe in note taking. It helps you make sure you identify mistakes because you are now engaging in another modality in addition to what you are writing on the board. So there's a check and a recheck built into your instruction paradigm. It helps any type of recording that may be happening for transcripts or captioning, right? This is one act. What was the act? Just say it out loud as you write it down. What, what did that cost? Right. I mean, yes, there's a little bit of a difference. Maybe you've done it a different way 10 years ago or, you know, what, what have you, but like, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. All right. We're not talking about the $25,000 solution here. We're, we're talking about say stuff as you write it down. Don't say here and there and that thing. Say what the that thing is when you point to something. In your line of work, I'm sure you have pet peeves or you get offended by things <laughs> outside of your line of work um, like we all do. Is there something that gets you, rubs you the wrong way when you hear it or see it? 
I mean, there's the usual stuff, but I, I really like I made a pretty active decision. I don't know why, by the way. Like, I don't claim to have any insight into why I made this decision, but I do remember making the decision around nine or 10 years old. So, so call it like a two, three years after the, the tennis ball thing, uh, where I was very clear with myself. Right. That I wasn't going to really let this affect me in a negative way. Now, obviously within my own control, there's obviously outside factors, but I tend to shrug things off in some ways that other people think is pretty, uh, like serious, you, you know, just because I don't have time for that nonsense. Right. Like, like somebody talking loudly to me and I'm like, that's, that's deaf. That's the other disability. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's like, it's like the stupid right. stuff, right? Like, yeah. or it's the, it's the, like, like you clearly saw me come in here with a cane and like look slightly to your left, whatever, when I was talking with you, but you handed me like a print, you know, sheet of paper, you know what I mean? Like, like, like just people not, not, not thinking and like, okay, what what's the what's the reaction there, right? You you could use it as a learning opportunity. I often do. I mean, you have no idea how many like Lyft and Uber uh, uh, discussions I've had with drivers, but usually I'm in teaching mode. Like that's the parlance that that's the worldview I live in. My dad was a professor for 35 years. Like it's it's genetic at this point, right? I like teaching. I like I like showing people things as opposed to you know just yelling at them when they do something wrong because then you don't move the world forward. But I should say this. That's a personal choice, right? It is not the job of persons with disabilities to educate the rest of the world, right? Like that's not their job, right? Just like how it's not your job to go around like educating, you know, me about how like sighted people interact with things, right? Like that's, that's not what you subscribe for and that shouldn't be put upon you. Where I become upset is when I know that it can affect others. You know, when you're blind, especially in the United States, you at the state level, there's a department of like rehabilitation and stuff. They kind of like help you, you know, with like some funding for college and some other things. It's a whole state thing. It's a, it's a whole program. But the important takeaway for this story is that one of the counselors I had, uh, you know, I was in high school. Uh, I was actually, excuse me, I was in college. Uh, I had already been getting like job offers from Silicon Valley companies and all this stuff. I was doing all right, right? I, weren't, I, I was not the, the, the problem, uh, uh, you know, to, to worry about here because I was very fortunate. Uh, however, you know, this guy was like, well, uh, you know, you, you, you are asking to go to graduate school and, you know, have you considered getting a job? Uh, you know, I'd already worked at a startup at this point. I'd already, you know, <laughs> gotten job offers at this point. Uh, and because like, you know, education is important, but so is work experience. And I think we could like find something, a target for you, you know, like scanning barcodes, you know, that sort of thing. Like, like I'd already been programming systems inside of hospitals at that point. Uh, and, and so there's a little bit of like, just, you know, a front from a personal, like, seriously, like, you know, seriously, uh, but also that I honestly didn't care about as much. The thing that made me furious, um, is and like my next call was to the governor he was fired within 24 hours uh was uh that uh, he was telling other people this that did not come from a family who essentially instilled in them that you know you can do whatever he was telling other people this that did not have the uh, opportunities to grow up uh, in a district where the school was giving them accommodations where they could go learn computers and do that stuff that i had the privilege and fortune of being able to do that's what pissed me off right at that point like you want to it's beyond pet peeve that to me is just anathema like that person is not they're just they're just a waste because they're perpetuating such a deeply problematic thing that uh it it it's why we have so many what's the unemployment rate amongst blind people right now 70 percent 80 percent last i looked right it's that high it's that high and so it's a really big deal to make sure people don't interpret the lack of accessibility as their own failings and that's where we come back to this whole environment being disabling thing. Okay, I, I have to ask you. This is this is probably you know. I, although you offer to teach, so I'm going to just use yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take me up on it. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but um, for us who use our eyes for sight, mm-hmm. um, we'll be at an intersection, and we will see someone using a cane and <laughs> clearly blind. Yep. And all of us look at each other. 
and no one's really <laughs> sure what we should do. Yep. Solve yep. that problem for us. Cause you might sure. not see, you might not it's be, easy. maybe you can. No, that. I know. Oh, trust me. I know about the problem. Yeah. Number one, if they seem like they're fine, don't do anything. Right. Just like how you wouldn't do anything if you saw somebody else who didn't have a cane crossing the street. Like you, you don't, you don't turn to your fellow human and go, I wonder if I should help that 20 year old college student cross the street, right? Like that's not a thing that happens. However, however, there's, and, and, and different people are going to react to this differently. But in my opinion, if they obviously seem like they may be struggling, instead of uh, enforcing or imposing your help, just ask if they need a hand. Yeah, I think I think that what people probably have this inner conflict about, and and I think that it's a good conflict, is not wanting to assume that somebody is less capable, right? right. I think that that's that human emotion, and I, I sometimes I, I feel like that that's actually a good conflict that people are having within themselves. If you think about it, sometimes those problems are environmental. For example, the that street is it difficult to cross because there's not an audible signal indicator? Is it difficult to cross because there's not curb cuts for somebody who's a wheelchair user and also tactile indication for somebody who's a cane traveler or a guide dog user, right? Like, like there's these things that we can do societally, environmentally, to make crossing the street not be a problem. For me, it's an offer. You know, I happen to be crossing the same way as you. Would you like an elbow? They're like, no, cool. Good talk, right? right like, yeah. And and if if it's yes, then offer the elbow, <laughs> Yeah, like it's but but you see how it's an offer you're making and not an imposition of let me let me help you across the street is very different. If you had an unlimited amount of money, let's just call it like ten billion dollars. Now, where would you put it right now to advance the field? I would double down on a couple of different industries. First of all, if there's any short-term plays, I would just buy up some of these proprietary assistive technologies and turn them into open source ones, right? And and remove some of the the incentives that the counter incentives that exist where screen readers can cost a thousand dollars or you know wheelchairs can cost you know twenty thousand dollars and it's really only two thousand dollars in parts. Things like that, right? Because there's a lot you can do by amortizing your money over, you know, a period of time and then actually helping people, right? As opposed to, as opposed to like just, uh, buying it outright, right? So there's, there's a lot of like cost sharing measures and stuff that you can do. But then in terms of solving problems, what I would concentrate on is most certainly machine learning approaches for accessibility. This is key, right? Basic machine learning approaches that can solve to the same level of accuracy and deterministic behavior, but with far greater versatility, the problems that are being solved right now inadequately by screen readers, screen and enlargement technologies and other assistive technologies. I'd also be putting that money into the intrinsic building blocks uh, problem. So what are the top five user interface libraries that are used in the world right now? Does that compose 80 to 90% of applications? Great. Let's go build accessibility into all of those. That might be 30 to $50 million a pop, but it's nothing, right? 300 million bucks out of 10 billion, and you've solved some intrinsic accessibility gaps in such a way that then the, you can use the training from that to see who the good de- designers and engineers are. I would then take those people and put them into various think tanks, have them solve different problems, uh, both on long, medium, and short-term time horizons, having to do with disability, equity, access, policy, right? Everything, like up and down the stack so that you don't just have narrow solutions, but that you have broad spectrum solutions to these things. Because when you start solving those problems, what happens is that you create the environments for happy accidents. The incentive model is such that you are not, you know, your values are not aligned with the services that you're using. So I think that if we have the opportunity to use some, you know, magical source of funds to decouple those incentive models, then you can actually do really good work. And you can do work that then can proliferate around the web. I mean, around the, around the world. That's how the web was born. I mean, that's, look at the web. It wasn't commercialized until later. It was given away for free and all this stuff came from it. Both, both the good and the bad. As individuals in the world, I really think that there needs to be this shared responsibility to make the world incrementally better. Now, for some people, it might be more than for others. For example, like if you work at a media company and can insist on captioning an audio description, that's a 
really big deal. On the other hand, if you are the person who sits behind a desk and is interacting with the public, then what are those things you can do with your language and the methods by which you offer help to people to make them feel more you know, like they belong there and are included, right? So I think there's like different levels of responsibility or different amounts of effort that people can put into it. But if I wanted people to think about something, it is that they themselves, no matter what they do, are in situations on a daily, definitely on a weekly basis, where they could make a big difference on this stuff. So the people who just thought to themselves, that's a good point. I, I should go do that right now. Uh, where do they start? Read a little bit about inclusion and inclusive design, right? Like, you know, Google accessibility and just like go down the, the you know, go down like a good YouTube rabbit hole, right? <laughs> like Where you don't end up with conspiracy theories, but instead are like, oh, my computers can talk. That's really cool. But at the end of the day, also just talk with people, like look around the world that you're in and notice the kinds of friends and colleagues you have. What different abilities do they have? A lot of disabilities are hidden, by the way. Like we haven't talked a lot about that, you know, like mental health and reading and, you know, reading differences and all that stuff. Like be thinking about just how, when you're going through your everyday life, somebody who may not have certain access to those same senses or abilities would perform those tasks. And in whatever way that you are part of doing those tasks, you can make that easier for folks, I think is something to spend a little bit of cognitive energy on. If we can experience delight at the same time, given that he's blind, I'm not, we're consuming experiences and content in a different, you know, through different modalities, that if we share in that experience of delight, then that's an inclusive outcome. Thanks to Sina Baram for talking with me today. To hear this podcast and other amazing conversations with people redefining disability, don't forget to subscribe to Taking Flight wherever you get your podcasts. For some fun bonus material and some other goodies, head to perrylarock.com. This podcast was produced by Auto Vita, sound engineering by Sean Henninger and Greg Williams. Theme music by my buddy, Andrew Parker Renga. Check out more of his music at aprmusic.com. Today's show also features music from film score composer Sean Henninger from the band Memory, spelled with two Y's. For more of his music, visit memorymusic.com or neonmoonstudios.com. Additional music from Greg Williams of the band The Grawl Brothers. For more of their music, visit thegrawlbrothers.bandcamp.com. And thanks to our sponsors, Mansfield Hall, a residential college support program for students on the autism spectrum in Vermont, Wisconsin, and Oregon, and Virtual Hall, providing virtual academic and social support for students attending college across the world. On next week's episode, the illustrious Dr. Temple Grandin. You know, being autistic really wasn't the problem for me in my career. It was being a woman. But I had to make myself really good at what I did. And I had a very strong urge to prove to the world I was not stupid when I was in my 20s. I'm Perry LaRock. See you next time. Thank you.